Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Paul says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Wow, this is God's word for us tonight. You know, it's a common experience uh, of getting uh, to do the amount of weddings that I get to do. And I get to do a lot of them. I love them. Speaking of weddings for Holly and Mark, wink, wink. Um, But one of the interesting things that I find is oftentimes couples will have very difficult first years of marriage. Maybe you could talk to your parents or friends who would say, you know, that first year of marriage, that was a tough one. And I've I've been sort of uh, hypothesizing over the years why that might be the case. And it occurred to me in a recent discussion I had with some folks that, were, uh, that are getting married very soon that one of the reasons why I think it's difficult is because weddings tend to feel like they're endings. Do you know what I mean by that? 
Um, you get to the point of a wedding where suddenly you finally know, here they are. You know, at last I found the one. <laughs> I've arrived. Uh, uh, you know, perfect companionship, lifelong, you know, friendly bliss, unlimited sexual expression, <laughs> nirvana, right? That's what we we're all looking for. How long does it take? What, a month, six months, a year? Before all of a sudden it occurs to you that after the cake, after the flowers, and after the presents, you actually have to live with this person, <laughs> this other person. And look, one of my great challenges when I'm trying to communicate during pre-marriage counseling is to simply say that a great wedding feels like an ending. It feels like you've closed a chapter of singleness in your life, but the truth is it's only the beginning. Because the struggle to live with another sinner um, oftentimes completely blinds us, especially new couples. And some of them don't even make it because of that very fact. Look, I think the same sensation is true for many struggling Christians who are sort of wondering what Christianity is about. Because Paul's doctrine of justification, as we've been talking about in the last few weeks, is so profound and grand and sweeping that it's very tempting to make it feel like an ending. You know, at last, we say to ourselves, you know, I've arrived. Spiritual nirvana. We're here. We've got it. But see, Paul realizes something that's very important that you have to grasp. That when the Spirit of God does a work of grace about you in justification, he then begins a process within you to give you a whole new life. A life that will be marked by holiness. And of course, that holiness is going to be gained, he says, through a fight. It's going to happen in a struggle. Now look, I realize that as soon as I say that Christianity is a struggle that it's a fight, that it's difficult. For many of you, you don't want to hear that. It's got a distaste inside of you for, for a number of different reasons. In my opinion, I think American Christianity has sort of shortcutted the process uh, of, of, this, uh, of Christianity through what I would call sort of Christian gimmickry. You know what I mean? Let me give you a couple of examples. For some people, they want the Christian life to sort of fall out in these really tidy formulas. Three easy steps to a wonderful new prayer life right? Uh, we hunt down for the latest Christian book that is so awesome, you know, that somebody told us about. <clears throat> Maybe we've kind of polished off a couple of the more manageable aspects of our lives. Um, we throw around these ridiculously, th th these, these empty phrases to each other. We look at each other and we're like, well, you know, you just need to let go and let God. You need to take self off the throne of your life. You need to sort of just let Jesus take control and we expect these things to somehow kind of, oh, you're right, ta-da, holy. Doesn't do it. Secondly, for many of us, it's not so much the Christian gimmicks, but it's sort of the, um, the mystical Christian experience. We kind of wait for God to sort of whoosh through us in some ecstatic religious moment. Some of us even come to worship services with that expectation. We're hoping that the, the music and the lights being dimmed and the sort of, you know, the, the, the brush of angels' wings, you know, are somehow supposed to, <laughs> supposed to lift me up into some new state, after which it was just, y'all, nothing was the same after that. Hmm. Some of us long for a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. 
you know, in some sort of strange, new, kind of charismatic Pentecostal sense where the Spirit sort of takes us over. For some people, it's supposed to create utterances and languages you never grew up speaking, the gift of tongues. But for others of us who kind of look at that sort of uh, religious expression as distant, don't we do the same thing when we pray prayers like, God, won't you just take this struggle away from me? I've got this desire inside my heart. It's a sinful desire. I wish you'd just take it away. Same thing. We want for God to deal with our problems. Thirdly, though, for another category, there's a group of people that just kind of avoids the whole discussion. Because quite honestly, Christianity has been a very helpful appendage to their lives. But the fact that I would ever have to extend like any serious effort in its pursuit is just immediately distasteful. And for a lot of people, they leave Christianity behind at the mere thought that there would be a struggle. Look, y'all, tonight we have to dive into the combat that takes place on the field of Christian living. And, of course, we're trying this semester to fight against our boredom, the boredom that we naturally struggle with with Christianity, by simply trying to explain that maybe, just maybe, our boredom with Christianity is due to the fact that just like newlyweds at their weddings... We thought of coming to Christ as an ending when the truth is it's really only the beginning. So I want to unpack this tonight. I want to unpack our struggle by saying three things. We need to first of all look at the reality of the struggle or the fact of the struggle. We need to consider secondly the location of the struggle where it takes place. And then finally we need to look at the way through the struggle. Is there an empowerment to bring us through that? So the reality... The, the location, and the way through. First of all, the reality of the struggle. Look, it's natural to sort of wonder why there would have to be a struggle in the first place. Why less is there a big fight going on inside our hearts? Well, Paul explains it in Romans chapter 7. And his basic explanation is simply this. If there's a fight in Christianity, for him as an individual, it's because God's law started it. Just like little kids. He started it, Paul says. The law, God's rules, his demands upon human beings to be his subjects started this fight. You see, because in Paul's previous life, before he was the great apostle Paul, he was actually the self-righteous Pharisee Saul. And during that time, you know, he was a pretty good Jew. He spent his time studying he poured over God's commandments and he learned God's law by heart so it became natural to him. You know, and so when he went through the Ten Commandments, he started thinking he was doing pretty well. Until, that is, he came to the brick wall of the Tenth Commandment. That's the one that says, you shall not covet. Paul says in verse 9, we didn't read this in our passage tonight, but you can look back in your Bibles, that in verse 9, that when suddenly he started mulling over that commandment, he died, quote unquote. Now, what in the world is he talking about he died? What does that mean? Well, well it means a couple things that we can say about this. First of all, what Paul is saying is, is that sin for me was always sort of a theoretical notion. Sin had never really come home to me, is what he's saying, until he got to that commandment. And the reason why is because when you look at the other Ten Commandments, it's relatively easy to look at those things, and can I use the word externalize them? In other words, when you look at, let's say, the, the law about uh, you shall not murder, 
for most of us in this room, I feel like when we're, you know, sort of flipping through the Ten Commandments, we get to that one and we're kind of like, well, okay, I'm safe on this one. You know, there's no bodies in my trunk that I know of, okay? Not taking anyone's life lately. Next commandment, please. And to, in other words, it's easy to sort of set that thing on the outside and make it be just about the mere act. But all of a sudden, <laughs> when you get to the Tenth Commandment, it says, no, no, no. What I also want you to be is to never covet somebody else. In other words, I want you to be completely satisfied internally with what I give you and don't ever long for anything else other than what my gracious hand has granted to you. (laughs) In other words, all of a sudden, when he got to the last one, Paul looked and said, wait a minute, the law is not just about what I'm doing on the outside, it's what I'm doing on the inside. And when that law came in that said, do not covet, I died. And I realized that God did not just want external conformity. He wanted my heart. And suddenly I realized I'm in trouble because I can't fix that. And suddenly began to see this thing rising up inside of him. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is if that wasn't enough, in verse 13 he says that the more that he thought about that commandment, that all of a sudden it became sinful beyond measure. In other words, he actually found that the more that he tried to avoid coveting and envy, the worse it got. In other words, when he was like, oh, you're right, I shouldn't covet. Okay, I'll try harder. It got worse. He found there was more inside of him. The more he concentrated on the law, the worse it got on the inside. Now, what in the world is going on with that? Well, it's come, we come to a point that I've tried to talk to you about in weeks past, but it's worth revisiting. The Bible understands your heart to have a pro-sin bias. <laughs> that it's the, the, the sort of steering wheel of your life is out of alignment. And the moment that you try to fix it, you end up making it worse. The Bible refers to this as the perversity of the human heart. I tried to say a couple of weeks ago about what it's like when you walk past a, a patch of grass. It has a little sign on it that says, do not walk in the grass. And you look at that sign and you look around and you think, "Mm, it's hard to keep from wanting to put your foot when someone just bold out tells you not to do something. Reminds me of a story and John Stott in his wonderful little commentary on Romans brought this story up and I'd heard it before. Of a story that happened to St. Augustine. Uh, The great St. Augustine, 4th or 5th century Christian, early church father struggled with an event from his childhood where he and some friends stole into a pear orchard and they began stealing fruit off the trees. Um, And after the event happened, Augustine began to really struggle with his conscience. Like he was so bothered by this experience. And as he writes in his memoirs, he says, the problem with it was that it's not that we needed the fruit We all were in possession at home of fruit of much better quality and quantity. It wasn't wasn't what the fruit could give to me that disturbed me, but it was the fact that the only reason I stole it was because it was wrong. It was the wrongness of it that appealed to me. Now let that sink in for a second. Paul is saying that when he looked inside his own heart, (laughs) there was death. He wanted it just because God said not to. He wanted to actually be against what God wanted him to be. Look, here's the point. (laughs) The descriptive event for the Christian life is struggle, is a fight against that very force. 
that when you boil down, if you set your soul into a spiritual crucible and boil it down to its most fundamental constituent parts, you have on the one hand your desire to be in charge and on the other God's absolute certainty that he is in charge. That's it. (laughs) And therein lies the horns of the dualism inside the heart of a person who's who's discovered uh, sin in their heart. Look, my friends, if you don't understand that Christian, the Christian life is a struggle, if you're preoccupied with the so-called victorious Christian life, or worse, you actually think you're living that life, it's likely, in my opinion, that you've stopped looking at God's law. You've actually stopped understanding what God's rules for living are, and you've had to tone it down. Look, God's rules for living have to always be kept in front of you, Not because, as we've said, that your salvation depends on it, but the only thing that's going to keep you humble enough to be depending on his grace for salvation is that very law. That's why Paul says it's holy, just, and good. It's good for me because it drives me back to Jesus for more grace. Look, you realize what this means. It means that your justification is not the only thing that's by grace. Your sanctification, the process of becoming a new person, is just as much by grace. We don't think that, do we? We think Jesus saves me by grace, but then afterwards it's kind of like me and him sort of, you know, together. I put in my effort, he puts in mine, he goes, nope, nope, nope. You're giving yourself way too much credit. This is no 50-50 proposition here in your holiness. This is me working through you by my grace. Now let me ask you a question. Are you going to own up to that or are you not? Because what the flesh comes up and does, it says, no, you can do it yourself. I can handle it. And it creates a war. Okay, so the second question we got to ask, I'm trying to convince you that there's a war. The second question is, well, where is the war? What's the location of the struggle, secondly? And we come to a passage that I almost wish I could take a survey of the room to see if you've ever read this before in the Bible. I mean, the first time that you read and hear the Apostle Paul say, you know, the good stuff that I'm trying to do, I don't ever do that. And the bad stuff that I'm trying to not do, for some reason, I keep doing that. For a lot of people, when they get to that, they're just kind of like, that's in the Bible? (laughs) I've never read that before. The Apostle Paul would be that honest and that sort of um, uh, um, self-revealing, I guess. Paul says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You know, what, what strikes me first of all, I've been thinking through this passage for a while, what strikes me first of all, is how for many of us, that's an immediately jarring statement. Because we say things to ourselves in giving advice to one another that goes something like this. We say things like, well, look, you know, I mean, um, if you really wanted to stop, you'd just stop. I mean, if you really wanted to change your life, then you would just do it. I mean, if you really, you know, decided that your life was going in a bad direction, you would just change it. But the truth is you don't want to. Paul looks and goes, look, no offense, but you... (laughs) My psyche is much more complicated than that. It is not a simple matter of your willpower. There is something fundamentally weird going on in the heart. What does it mean? Where is it? But to be honest with you, in my experience, when people first read how Paul talks, they get kind of put off by it because he looks and says in verse 17 that when I do what I don't want to do, 
It's no longer I who do it, look at that verse 17, but sin that dwells in me. Aha, we think when we first read this. There he goes. <laughs> this is Paul sort of like uh, making excuses, right? The sort of, um, um, I don't know, proto, the devil made me do it defense um, that he's offering to people. But look, I think in fact, though, that's a, in my opinion, the most profound part of Romans chapter 7, what he says there. And you've got to grasp this, so bear with me for a second while I try to explain this. When Paul says, it is no longer I who do it, I myself who do it, but sin living in me, I want to suggest you that he is talking about the most profound, fundamental struggle that a Christian has. And that is the struggle to identify who he really is. Paul understands that when you sort of look at me, there's a sense in which I'm kind of an onion. And when you get to sort of the more fundamental lower parts of me and peel away the outside, there is a me that most fundamentally defines me. And the location of Christian struggle is in that place. Who are you? The struggle in Christianity takes place on the playing field of identity transformation. This is where Paul lives, right? He says, as a Christian, I, the I, if you will, my truest self, really seeks God, wants to know God, longs for his law and longs for holiness. But while sin remains in me with a lot of strength, I've made a determination that that's never going to be the thing that ultimately defines me. In other words, he's saying it's not going to be the most fundamental aspect of my personality. It will never be the driving force of my life. That's what he's doing. He's not making excuses for his struggle. He's actually explaining. He's working through the struggle out loud in front of you. If I do what I don't want to do, the very evil that I'm trying to stay away from, it's not I that do it. The most fundamental definition of me, because you know who defines that? God alone by his grace. Only he can tell me who I am on that fundamental uh, level. Look, y'all, the Christian, even in defeat, even when they fail, has a change of consciousness when they say, the I, the real me, loves the law of God so much so that I can look at that sin and say, that's not the real me. I will not let that sin be the defining moment of my life. In other words, that sin, that struggle, that, that rebelliousness will not define me. Look, I want you to understand tonight how profound this is. Because for most of us, I want to simply pitch to you tonight that the reason why we fail so miserably at the struggle for holiness is because the truth is we, we have misplaced the fight. We're not fighting in the right place. You know, your battle is not primarily or, or sort of um, singularly in your intellect. Some of us try to fight it there, as if I can sort of reason my way into a new life. The battle is not fundamentally for your emotions, as if you could work yourself up into some, uh, I don't know, uh, ecstasy or, or, or sort of moral pep talk to make yourself feel better. And your battle equally is not fundamentally on your willpower, as if all you need is sort of a, a powerful, you know, conference experience maybe. You just need a mountaintop experience to sort of push me on into holy living. no. Paul says the battle for, Christ, for the Christian is on the playing field of your deepest commitments. In your deepest self-understanding. 
And all those things, your mind, your will, and your emotions are included and subsumed in that. But when it comes down to it, there's something more fundamental. It's this place that the Bible calls your heart. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago here. In other words, he looks and says, it's in the place of my heart, the things that inside of me that lock on to things and say, this is what makes me, me. That's where the battle is. See if I can give you an example of this. A number of years ago, the great actress uh, Olympia Dukakis won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress uh, in a movie called Moonstruck. It's one of my favorite movies. If you ever want to sort of get a look into this hilariously funny uh, uh, New York uh, Italian family dynamics, it's a great movie. Um, at the end of the movie, though, Olympia Dukakis' character is faced with a huge temptation. She's standing outside of her home uh, where her husband is... Um, Uh, inside waiting on her and she's with a man that she's met very casually met by the way but he's trying to talk her into having an affair with him he's trying to talk her into sort of um, uh, 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 leaving her vows and actually going in another direction having an affair and at one point he looks and he goes why not why not see how the other half lives and her character looks up and she goes You can't come into my house tonight because I'm married, because I know who I am. See what she did? (laughs) You see how she's reasoning? She reasons with herself to say that the question of my life, of who I am, is fundamentally settled. The affair simply was not an option. Look, my friends, you're not going to win any fights spiritually if you don't show up in the right place. Look, by the end, Paul throws up his hands and says, what a wretched man that I am. Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? But did you notice that right after that, he answers his own question? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, right? It's Jesus who, it's his willpower that delivered him, not mine. Why? Because if you look in chapter 8, he says that therefore there is now no condemnation. That's it. There's no condemnation. I can't be judged by this anymore. You see what he's doing? He's walking himself through the process of identity reaffirmation. <laughs> it's exactly the way in which all the apostles reason. I would argue that it's the way in which the, uh, the letters of Paul lay out. You ever notice this? Go to the book of Galatians. First three chapters, talk about your position. Last three chapters, talk about what life ought to proceed from that. The book of Ephesians, first three chapters, what God has won for us in Christ. Last three chapters, what we're to do in response to that. Do you see how it works? The Bible looks and says, here's who you are. Now go live in the light of that. It's an identity issue. Look, hopefully for you now, this begins to sort of lay out the way of getting through this. And that brings me to my third and final point. The way through the struggle oftentimes is obscured to people because they miss what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. In my opinion... Romans chapter 8, 1 through um, whatever we read, 11 or 12 there, is the answer to what Paul has said in his struggle at the end of chapter 7. And what he looks in, people look up and they say to themselves, okay, Les, now we get it. You just said tonight that the Christian life is a struggle. Basically, I guess it's all back in my court now, right? You know, I, I basically, in order for me to be holy, finally, here it is, it's up to me. Now we see what's happened. <laughs> but Paul does not allow you to think that way. Instead, what he starts to talk about is living, now listen, 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 according to the Spirit, right? 
He talks about, about setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Now look, y'all, the Greek word that's translated there, set your mind, is actually a little too flimsy of a translation. I can see what they're getting at, but it's a bit weak. What Paul literally means is, is to live, to live life by the Spirit is to dwell upon, to meditate on, to focus intently upon, to be preoccupied by, to have your imagination totally captured by the things of the Spirit. Now, you're following what we're saying if you think to yourself, okay, 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 right, right, right. What are those again? <laughs> Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Listen to this. He says, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts, listen, on things above where Christ is seated. Listen to how he talks. Your life is now hid with Christ in God. And all of a sudden he looks and says, to be preoccupied with those things above. What are those? We are to remember that we have been raised with Christ and are accepted by him in the Father. That's it. You want to think about the stuff the Spirit thinks about? Think about what God has won for you in your salvation. Dwell on it. Mull over it. In other words, the Holy Spirit in Colossians 3 is actually not explicitly mentioned. But the principle is the same. The thing that you're supposed to be preoccupied with is your new standing in Christ. That there's a brand new world that he has brought you into that you won't believe it until you see it. And then he gives an attempt to sort of explain it in the rest of chapter 8. Come back next week for that discussion. Because there are beauties packed into the latter half of chapter 8 that quite honestly are staggering in their wonderfulness. Enough to make us want to focus on it? Maybe. 1 Peter 1.12 throws out this throwaway comment where Peter says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, listen, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. What a weird throwaway statement by, by Peter. Peter's looking and saying that God has done something so earth-shattering in your salvation that the angels in heaven get kind of excited to see it. <laughs> this is kind of a cool thought if you take Peter out to where he's going with this. The angels long to look into what God has done in you, in his son, Jesus Christ. They just can't wait to see it. You know what it's like? It's like, it's like a kaleidoscope. You know, I, I looked this up because I thought this was interesting. You know what the word kaleidoscope, do you ever have a kaleidoscope? The little sort of a, I don't know, cardboard tube that had the thing at the end that twisted and you, you put your eye up to this side and you saw these beautiful colors. I actually looked it up. The word kaleidoscope is from a handful of Greek words that literally means, if you take it uh, 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 literally, it's, it means to look at beautiful shapes. Isn't that exactly what it is? To look through and to see the sort of beautiful images and the shapes that shift and mold and, and morph. My friends, in many ways, that's where you're headed. The way through the struggle is to let the gospel become a kaleidoscope. That with every single turn of the page of God's holy scripture... 
there's another beauty that gets unfolded to you that makes you say, Whew. I didn't see that one. Look, y'all, has there ever been a time where the gospel has set itself in front of you on those terms? Have you ever looked at it and thought to yourself, oh, that'd be so great if that were really true? Because if you have, that's the Spirit. <laughs> that's the Spirit. And to follow that thought is to walk according to the Spirit. And to all of a sudden actually come back to RUF next week can be itself an expression of actually setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. To look and say, ah, tell it to me again. Say it again, it was a bad week. Go through that thing again of who I am and tell me that I'm more sinful and wretched and depraved than I could possibly imagine. I forgot it this week, but that I'm more loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ than I could ever dare dream. Do it again. And you turn the kaleidoscope and maybe sometimes, you know what's happened? Some of you, it's happened. You sat here on Wednesday nights. You've been at church on Sunday morning. Maybe you got up and for once or actually read your Bible on your own. Maybe you had a conversation with a friend that you walked away and thought to yourself, Wow. Could that be true? It's the Spirit. <laughs> and the way through the struggle is to follow that thought. Go with it. Go. <laughs> and I would also say come back next week where we try to unfold some of these beauties that Paul says are in the Spirit. You want to know what the Spirit talks about? Cheat this week and read the rest of chapter 8. That also is an invitation. <laughs> Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, grant to us the grace to see, to turn, as it were, in the pages of Scripture, the kaleidoscope of your grace towards us. It has been a bad week. For many of us, we have forgotten so much. We, are, we, are, we have been so threatened by the sin inside our own hearts that we've been tempted, deeply tempted, to allow that to be the thing that tells us who we are, that we're failures that we, are, that we are rebels against you. And so, Lord, here tonight in the quiet of this room, maybe perhaps even in the sung lyrics of this music that we'll sing here in a moment, maybe there we could actually see that it's not true and that we do long for you. Lord Jesus, I pray, though, especially for that soul who is actually coming to realize that that's never happened to them that the Holy Spirit has never revealed beauties to them, but only something that looks like a cold, pale duty. Lord, for that soul especially, would you show yourself lovely to them tonight, that there is therefore now no condemnation to go back and visit the gem of justification over and over again, maybe even for the first time tonight. Lord Jesus, if what we just read is true, then only you can do that by your spirit. And so we're asking that you would do that, even in the singing of this last song. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.